The format, this large oversized photo format treatment, was intentional because what we aimed to do was very, very simple. Jump over all of the policy arguments or position papers, reports, and data, and demographic statistics. We don't go into that for the most part. This is a book of images. It's essentially a slideshow of the earth as transformed by human numbers and human behavior. We wanted to do that in as simple a format as we could, showing uh, this transformation of the earth in powerfully compelling images from around the globe, uh, but also make it um, in some ways uh, evocative and and powerfully emotionally compelling through the size. Almost... uh, all of the images are, are in this large format treatment are almost poster size images. So there's a weight and a heft to the project that uh, really can't be ignored. You are part of the Foundation for Deep Ecology, and that deserves a whole long interview on its own. We don't have time to get into it. But could you explain the principles of how you apply deep ecology and the perspective to this issue, which is so often misunderstood as far as the exponential growth that people don't always comprehend? Yes. Well, very briefly, we don't have time to go into a a long discussion about the principles of deep ecology or or really about the foundation. But the the private foundation that I work for that helped underwrite the book, which I'll refer to as just OVER for short, and its related populationspeakout.org campaign, is called the Foundation for Deep Ecology because the uh, founder, the principal of this uh, family foundation, was very much uh, taken with the writings of Arne Ness, the Norwegian philosopher, and other contemporary ecological philosophers who've written in the field of deep ecology. In a nutshell, that simply refers to a body of contemporary environmental philosophical thinking the absolute heart of which, the core principle of which is that all life has intrinsic value and that humanity is but a member, a part of this seamless web, this fabric of life, and not sovereign or lord or over it. Even if we apply that sort of deeply ecological thinking to contemporary environmental issues, we'll always, always be looking beyond just the superficialities, the, the kind of the, the symptoms of issues, and we'll be going to the root causes. In the case of global overpopulation and overdevelopment, this is the fundamental driver of all of these other major issues that we talk about, whether it's crashing wildlife populations and the extinction crisis, climate change, uh, violent conflict, poverty, inequity around the world. All of these issues are either driven by or maybe amplified by this radical upward trajectory of the human population and the amount of the Earth's natural bounty that we convert into commodities to run our economic lives. So a deeply ecological way of looking at the population question is to think about what the world may lo- should look like if humans were simply a member of the community of life and didn't have this misperception that the planet is simply a smorgasbord of resources to serve us. You know, you say that it's uh, contemporary, and yet it also is parallel to most traditional indigenous understanding of humanity and our place in the global web of life, which includes all living beings, and also that would look at growth as something cyclical and not linear. And could you talk a little bit about a linear way of thinking about growth is incompatible with the natural world and natural ecosystems? 
Yes, this economic system that we've sort of glommed onto the natural world is completely at odds with um, <laughs> with the physical reality of the Earth. Any anytime you have a system, an economic system that is designed that assumes perpetual growth and only works when it's growing. Um, that cannot work within a system that's bounded or finite. You know, the, the funny, the classic quip on this was from the late economist Kenneth Boulding, who said, um, essentially, the only people who believe in perpetual growth on a finite planet are either madmen or economists. So we, we have a system now that is fundamentally at odds with the Earth's physical limitations and realities. And the one thing that we know about a system that is unsustainable is that it won't be sustained. So we're running up into a, up to a lot of hard limits, uh, and we're seeing wobbling uh, in a lot of systems around the globe, in our ecological systems, in our social and political systems, in our economic systems. Much of that, not all of it, but much of it has to do with this radical exponential growth in human numbers and consumption, and yet we don't talk about it. So that was the whole point behind this book, to again get people talking about the population question. And what do you think some of the reasons are that people don't want to talk about it, and what do the organizations that you work with do to try and address that? It's a great question, and there have been a number of uh, experts who've written on that topic, and I, I can't do their arguments justice, uh, but in a very succinct and superficial way, I'll mention three points. One is that the political pressures not to talk about population that have helped make it a popula population question a taboo, these come from both the political right and the political left. And I can't think of another sort of contemporary issue in our public discourse where you get those pressures from both ends of the spectrum. Uh, not to talk about something. And inevitably, if we're talking about the radical growth of the human population, questions of human sexuality, gender relations, contraception, abortion rights, immigration policy, all of these things come up. Uh, those are hot-button issues. And it's usually easier for people, especially among NGOs in the nonprofit world who are trying not to offend people and are trying to raise money from donors, better, best not to go there. And then from the left end of the spectrum, it is a radical fringe, but there are people who want to equate voluntary family planning efforts with coercion and who want to stain uh, those efforts with uh, the cries or residual cries of racism and or eugenics or colonialism. Um, and these, uh, particularly if those family planning programs and efforts um, originate in the overdeveloped world and are targeted to help serve people in the um, high-fertility countries of the underdeveloped world. So, so you have those pressures from the, the left end of the spectrum as well. Then the third point, and this is my own theory, it's that the numbers that are, we talk, are talking about when you're thinking about the human population trajectory are so huge, they're so large that they're abstractions. If I say... Um, you know, if the UN Population Division puts out its report periodically, and it's going to say, it says X number of billion new people will be added to the human population in X number of decades, well, those are numbers that are just going to gloss over people's heads, I think. Make my eyes glaze over, because I can't understand what a billion people is. But I can say 
if I go to a Colorado Rockies game, and I'm there in Coors Field, and there's 50,000 people sitting around me, and somebody makes a great play, and the stands erupt in cheering, it feels like you're with a lot of people when you're with 50,000 other Colorado Rockies fans. Well, picture that in your mind's eye. Not just one stadium filled to the brim, or two, but four of that stadium, and then in a half again, filled to the brim, every seat, and half again. And that's the number of new people that come to the breakfast table on Earth every 24 hours. And we would want all of those people to be able to eat breakfast and lunch and have a reasonable chance at fulfilling their aspirations for a a high-quality life, even while leaving enough of the planet for all of the other species to to also eat breakfast and feed their families and have a high-quality life. So these numbers... That is the urgency of population, this population question, because of the, this continued upward growth of numbers and, ba- and consumption, is just an urgent topic, and why aren't we discussing it more? Well, you mentioned Kenneth Boulding, who was a um, beloved Boulder resident for many years, and another beloved Boulder resident, uh, Dr. Al Bartlett, talked about people's failure to understand exponential growth, and I, I think that the example you just gave is a, is a good one to really try and grasp it because it is so difficult to understand what exponential growth means. I mean, maybe one of the ways you could mention it, and I'm very bad at numbers, but could you talk about how often population has doubled in the last, say, century? Well, I can, I can tell you on the last couple of centuries is, is a little easier one to explain because it took all of human history, that is, all of the time since anatomically modern humans our species emerged to about the year 1800 for the human population to reach 1 billion. And that is to say that through almost all of human history, population growth was not a factor. We lived in communities, and over a generation or the course of two or three human lifetimes, uh, the growth in one's community would have been essentially uh, negligible wouldn't have noticed it because the population growth rate was something like one five hundredth of one percent. And about 12, 10 or 12,000 years ago when we invented agriculture, that may have ticked up by one order of magnitude. Uh, the population trajectory started to, uh, to go up, but still was a fraction of one percent. Then around 1800, when the, when the uh, global population hit one billion, there were a whole thing, a whole suite of things that happened at the onset of the Industrial Revolution uh, and post post Enlightenment, post Renaissance European history. We had all kinds of things emerge: uh, germ theory, modern medical practices, uh, the scientific method. We, had, we in essence, in, in essence, we got really good at living longer, and we got. Um, and, and so our innate biological capacity, biological capacity to reproduce, didn't, uh, you know, didn't decline, even though we were getting much better at living longer. And so that's when the real spike occurred in these last couple of centuries. And from 1800, roughly, to now, the human population grew by more than seven times. We're at 7.3 billion now, and growing by a million, uh, about every four days. Um, and our energy use per capita has expanded by more than 30 times 
since the advent of the Industrial Revolution and our ability to exploit fossil fuels, which are so concentrated that it has allowed us to do so much more work uh, that we have been able to transform the planet and break the climate in just a couple of centuries through those numbers and the behavior. Most of us who are, are environmentalists or ecologists are familiar with basic science of climate change and also climate deniers and who are, thankfully are being uh, fewer and fewer and, and as, the, as the evidence comes out more strongly. But what do you and other people involved with this project say to people who are basically population deniers who say, well, but, oh, but science can take care of it or technology can take care of it or it's really not that bad? What kinds of things do you say to people? Well, first of all, I think that sort of technological optimism uh, on all, all kinds of issues is generally misplaced. But I guess the, the thing that I would say is whether or not you think the human population growing by a million every few days is solvable by some techno technological change or some political transformation, whether you think that's going to be the case somewhere off in the future that there will be this magic bullet is it not the ethical thing? Is it not the moral thing? Is it not the right thing for us to be doing everything we can in this moment today to alleviate human suffering among the people, particularly in very uh, high fertility and impoverished countries? There are some between 800 and 900 million people on the planet right now who are chronically malnourished. They are essentially starving, either slower or a little faster. And there are another billion human beings on the planet whose economic circumstances are just a little bit above that. So if there was just a small problem in their economic circumstances, they'd be in that category of people who would be starving either slower or a little faster. That tells me just that one statistic alone, that huge percentage of the human population that exists right now that is suffering, that we should be doing everything we can to elevate the status of women, to educate girls, and make family planning information and tools universally available. Because it is the right thing to do to empower women and couples to only have the number of children they want to have when they want to have them. That's the right thing to do, even if there was not this demographic dividend. In fact, we know that when you do those things, when you elevate the status of women, educate girls, and make family planning information available, birth rates come down, and they typically come down very quickly, uh, and this happens across cultures. So why wouldn't we do that when it's the right and ethical thing to do and when it has potentially such great benefits, both ecological and uh, to alleviate human suffering? I want to let the listeners know we're speaking with Tom Butler, who is the editorial projects director of the Foundation for Deep Ecology and the editor of this most recent book, Overdevelopment, Overpopulation, Overshoot. What do you say to people who, who say, well, it's just a matter of reducing consumption on the part of first world countries or that things like that, overdevelopment of the Amazon is just because of greedy corporations and it's not, you know, population doesn't have anything to do with it? Personally, I am getting very tired of people with these old, tired old arguments that uh, everything is the, you know, it's either all numbers or either it's all consumption. This is, this is just silly uh, because obviously both of these things are a factor. Of course. Yeah. The reality is, of course, that the overdeveloped world, the affluent world, 
those people who had most access to fossil energy and best used it to organize their economies for maximum growth, they're the ones, and that is we are the ones, who are disproportionately responsible for breaking the climate. So, yes, it's, that's right. But it doesn't uh, uh, obviate the fact that very large numbers of people leading very low impact lives also have direct impacts on their local habitat. Um, a, a population in a low fertility country, um, I'm sorry, in a high fertility country and a very low income country like Niger, where the typical woman has almost eight children per person, um, that an individual born there in that country will have far, far little, far less impact than someone born in Europe, in Western Europe, or in the U.S. globally. But they still will have an ecological footprint. It will be mostly um, in terms of the local community's ability to support their their life. Um, so we all have impacts. It's not a question of beha- numbers or behavior. That is, you know, population or consumption. It's both. The overall impacts, that is, global overshoot, are a species outstripping the caring capacity of Earth to support us as well as the diversity of life, is a function of both of those things. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's often frustrating when people try to make an either-or argument, and as an ecologist, which is what my background is, it's, well, but it's both. It's all of it. It's, it's not, you can't separate one from the other. Exactly. You can't separate. These things are absolutely linked. And what is unfortunate, I think, by the people, uh, sometimes by the people who want to blame everything on the first world, and there's plenty of blame for us to bear, of course, is it, it diverts us, again, from talking about the practical, affordable, achievable things we can do right now and should be doing to alleviate human suffering, to give women the autonomy and the dignity that they deserve in being able to make family choices, family planning choices, and and space the number of children they would want. Um, We should be focused on what unites us, and that is across the political spectrum. I think people can, um, can agree that that is an ecologically and humanitarian benefit. If birth rates come down, in very poor but high-fertility countries because we have elevated the status of women, we've educated girls, and we've made family planning choices available within this sort of universal human rights framework that emphasizes the autonomy of individual women and their partners to make choices about family size and spacing. That is the thing we should be focused on, and I think people across the political spectrum of goodwill can agree that it is a a right and moral course of action. The benefits, of course, of doing that are great for alleviating suffering, but it doesn't excuse us. We have to also work on that overdevelopment question, and we can't also be trying to export this failed development model that assumes that mass consumerism and hyper-growth based on mega-technology and uh, constant economic growth and innovation. We can't be continuing to try and export that failed development model to the developing world. 
well, Tom Butler, in the last few minutes, for myself as an ecologist, sometimes I have to say I get a little discouraged when I look at inexorable growth of humans and human impact on the rest of our relatives, our non-human relatives, all living beings. What kinds of things give you hope, and what are you working on as far as a campaign with this book? Well, what gives me hope is all of the groups that are doing their best, both to serve the needs of suffering human beings by doing those things I already mentioned, by, by working on gender and equity issues, by uh, working on girls and education issues, and family planning issues, including in the overdeveloped world. You know, in, in our country, about half of pregnancies are unintended. So it's not like the, these issues don't apply here. They certainly apply in the overdeveloped world as well. What gives me hope are groups like the Population Media Center who are doing such interesting work with uh, behavior change communications by running these long-running um, radio soap operas in the, de- in the developing world that model different cultural norms. And they've worked in more than 50 countries around the globe. And what gives me hope is that this population trajectory, which gives, is going up so fast right now, can also come down. And we, we truly could be moving toward a world where we value wild nature, where human civilization is embedded in a context of wild ecosystems. Uh, the, the, the real you know, crux is to get through this current population bottleneck. We can do it. Um, the PopulationSpeakOut.org campaign, I think, has done a great job in starting to get this, uh, this issue, this population question, back in public conversation in our country and around the world. So I would encourage everybody who's thinking about these issues to go to the PopulationSpeakOut.org website, read through some of the book, and get involved in the campaign.